This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Department of Natural Resources will hold a listening session on Wisconsin's wolf population. Agency leaders will take input from the public regarding a release draft plan. It shifts from maintaining a statewide wolf population to managing the species locally within six wolf hunting zones, according to the Wisconsin Public Radio. The DNR's population management drew criticism in 2021 when nearly 20% of the state's wolf population was killed in less than three days. Those who wish to speak must register for the session by noon on February 6th and set to take place online February 7th. The public can make comments in writing now through February 28th. Fentanyl poisoning and abortion are two issues front and center in the upcoming Wisconsin Supreme Court race. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Supreme Court candidate Jennifer Darrow was confronted at a restaurant earlier this month by David Reddington. Reddington is the father of Cade Reddington, who died of fentanyl poisoning in 2021. Cade was seen with Darrow's son, Michael Darrow, hours before his death and was suspected of buying prescription pills from Michael in the weeks leading up to his death. Jennifer Darrow declined to comment and swiftly left the restaurant. More broadly, abortion has been a key issue in the Supreme Court race. The court will have the final word in many conflicts between Democratic Governor Tony Evers and the Republican-controlled legislature. Wisconsin's attorney general and the governor are suing to overturn the 1849 state law that bans nearly all abortion, a case that could make its way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Several candidates are running ads in the race. Janet Protasewicz, a Milwaukee County Circuit judge, has spent most or at most or has spent the most at about $700,000, according to AP News. The State Department of Health Services is asking the public to share its thoughts in a survey to determine how to best address opioid use disorder. DHS Director of Opioid Initiatives Paul Karuski said, quote, Our plan reflects the needs of Wisconsinites, and we intend to use feedback from this year's survey to do the same, end quote. Approximately $8 million will be available to support new and existing programs through a second round of opioid settlement funds. Last year, the Wisconsin Department of Justice gave final approval to an agreement between three major pharmaceutical distributors. Two of the distributors will make payments for 18 more years, and the third distributor, Johnson & Johnson, will make payments for nine more years. You can fill out the survey now through February 17th on the Wisconsin Department of Health Services website. Today, the Biden administration set a 20-year ban on mining upstream of Minnesota's Boundary Waters Area Wilderness. The New York Times reports that the plan closes over 200,000 acres to mining. The Secretary of the Interior Department, Deb Holland, signed the moratorium after scientific review and discussions with local and tribal groups. Environmental groups praised the conservation measure, while mining companies such as Twin Metals Minnesota LLC have been critical. The company has proposed a bid to build an underground mine near the wilderness. The University of Wisconsin-Madison announced it will establish a permanent center for its public history project, according to a press release from the UW. The Educational Center will seek to achieve a more equitable university and enrich curriculum. Chancellor Emerita Rebecca M. Blank commissioned the project in 2019 as one response to a campus study group that investigated two UW student organizations in the 1920s that bore the name of the Ku Klux Klan. The project has been well received by the public and many professors have incorporated the findings of the project into their courses. A recent public history exhibit, Sifting and Reckoning, acclimated over 20,000 accumulated over 20,000 visitors, making it one of the most popular exhibits at the Shazen Museum of Art. The university anticipates having the center up and running by midsummer. 
the University of Wisconsin Law School will not participate in a report by a national news magazine that ranks law schools nationwide, the law school dean has announced. The U.S. News and World Report ranking is based on values that do not align with the UW Law School's mission and goals, according to a statement from Dean Daniel Takagi. One of Takagi's objections is that the ranking penalizes law schools in states that grant licenses to graduates of in-state schools without passing the bar examination. A woman who opposed the West Side Apartment Project serenaded the City Planning Commission on Monday, voicing her objections by singing them. Claire Boulanger lives at the Normandy Square Senior Apartments near the project site, currently locate the location of the shuttered Market Square Theater. Her protest song cited, quote, noise, traffic, and dust, unquote, adding that she deplored the, quote, vexations from such irritations. Despite the songwriter's craft, the planned commission unanimously gave the project the green light, reports the Capital Times. And now, on to today's top stories. Want to get a glimpse, a glimpse of what the future Lake Monona waterfront may look like? Three finalist designs are being unveiled tonight, each with a very different vision for the land between Olin Park and Monona Terrace. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley has the story. To commuters, this stretch of waterfront along John Nolan Drive between Olin Park and Willie Street is a daily companion during the drive to and from work. To pedestrians, the waterfront is a place to run, bike, and gaze across the water to the lights of downtown in the distance. But three design teams are hoping to transform this 1.7-mile stretch of lakeshore that marks one of Madison's first impressions on visitors. Of the 14 entries submitted by the start of May last year, only three remain. These finalists presented their initial concepts back in November, but tonight is the first time the public will get the chance to see the designs in depth. The three finalists were tasked with creating designs that emphasize community, equity, environmental health, and transportation, while also preserving Lake Monona's cultural history and Frank Lloyd Wright's architectural legacy. These designs represent years of work on behalf of the Friends of Nolan Waterfront, a private nonprofit organization, and a city committee of community members. Both share the goal of transforming the Monona Waterfront into a cultural landmark for Madison. In an interview with WORT last month, Committee member Chandra Fiannan Miller described the selection process for the three finalists. Actually, we were quite constrained in the priorities, which helped us because it is a city contract that the three finalists will get. And so we had to abide by the sitting contracting principles, judge them across those criteria. Um, and then we came together, we talked to, to each one of them again. Um, we had an open uh, public meeting, and we narrowed it down to five, and then we did that from five. We, had, we did interviews with the team. I think we did them in the process of like less than two weeks, and then we selected the three going forward. These designs are radically different from each other, but all would significantly change the look of the current landscape. One proposal, from international design firm Sasaki, proposes emphasizing the preservation of native ecology, and would feature rain gardens, walking and bike paths decorated with artwork and quotes, as well as a community center. The most notable feature of this design is an elevated boardwalk slash nature trail circling over the water near Olin Park. A second design proposal from the women-owned firm Agency Landscape and Planning would restore the shoreline habitat for wildlife and would develop the land into three districts. These would include areas for fitness and community events, an interpretive boardwalk trail open to bikes and pedestrians, and an area for water activities like swimming and fishing. And a third design proposal, this time from James Corner Field Operations of New York, would split the land into four parks centered around different piers. These piers would feature everything from beaches, restaurants, and outdoor venues to nature centers, and would be connected to the surrounding areas of the city by tree-lined boulevards to improve the lake health and water quality. When speaking with WORT last month, Fienan Miller described the selection process after tonight's public meeting. Uh, committee members will be there, and then it will launch what I believe is an eight-week public input process where we're really working on how do we get as much public input from the community about what they like, what they don't like, because these are still 
preliminary because there's the master challenge process. Right. And then from that, the committee will select a finalist who will get the contract to proceed forward with the master plan design. This master plan is the goal of better connecting downtown with the lakefront and Olin Park, of which the John Nolan redevelopment is a part. So far, the city has already spent $225,000 paying these contractors. Another $200,000 will go to the contractor who wins the final design. And the whole project, from design to finish, could cost as much as $250 million, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Presentations on the three designs started at 6 p.m. at Madison Central Library. You can watch the meeting virtually, too, at media.cityofmadison.com. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. Four Madison chefs and a Madison baker were announced yesterday as semifinalists for a prestigious culinary award on a national level. WORT reporter Faye Parks has the story. Four Madison chefs and one baker are inching closer to a top national honor in the culinary arts. That's after the prestigious James Beard Awards announced a list of semifinalists yesterday. Chef Itaru Nagano of Fairchild, a restaurant on Monroe Street that offers classic cuisine, was one chef picked for the regional award. Nagano says he wasn't anticipating his selection and discovered he was nominated when casually checking his email. But I was just scrolling down. I was like, oh, they came out with the, the list. And then so I was scrolling down. I saw Jamie's name and then, and then I scrolled all the way down to the Midwest and I found our name in there. It was kind of really surprising, actually. <laughs> Nagano and his business partner, Andrew Kruger, who is also a James Beard semifinalist, opened Fairchild just two weeks before pandemic lockdown in March of 2020. At that time, we just, you know, we had to lay off pretty much everyone. And it was just me and my, and my business partner. It was just uh, he and I and uh, his fiance working Chef Francesco Mangiano of Osteria Papavero, an Italian restaurant in downtown Madison, was picked by the awards as one of the Midwest's best chefs. He faced similar challenges due to the outbreak of COVID-19. It wasn't fun to be constantly opening or closing, reopening or reclosing. Uh, we had very little way to use our patio, so it was, it was a little bit of a struggle for about a year and a half. Both chefs point to strong cultural ties as their motivation to take up culinary work. Nagano started when he was only 18 years old to relearn how to speak Japanese because I was born in Japan and uh, I've been here since I was nine um, and then ended up liking cooking a lot. <laughs> so I kind of just stuck with it for a, a long time. <laughs> for Manjano, cooking was a family affair. Well, I grew up in a family of uh, people that eat. I don't necessarily like the, the word gourmet or, or foodie. So people that like to eat, people appreciate to eat, travel, find, you know, cooking at home, but also going to restaurant, finding uh, you know, the new um, new hole in the wall or whatever you want to call it in Italy. So I was born and raised there. These two chefs exemplify the power of community support as they manage to survive trying economic times and eventually thrive. It's great to have a core of uh, loyal customers and see coming um, again and again. We're not a destination restaurant. We don't have people coming once a year. I think our price point is to a level that people can afford to come, sometimes even once a week. Uh, so we want to keep it that way. Other Madison semifinalists include Chef Jamie Huang of Ahan, an Asian-inspired restaurant on Winnebago Street, who was picked as one of the nation's emerging chefs. And baker Andrew Hutchison of Madison Sourdough, a from-scratch bakery on Willie Street, was picked as one of the nation's outstanding pastry chefs or bakers, a newly combined category. The awards are named in honor of James Beard, the late food writer, teacher, and cookbook author, and are now in their 32nd year. Criteria for the awards include, of course, excellence in cuisine along with broader goals, such as a strong emphasis on engagement with the community and a sustainable work culture. The semifinalists face stiff competition from chefs, bakers, and others from across the U.S. A list of finalists is expected to be announced in March, with final award winners announced on June 5th at a ceremony in Chicago. Other notable chefs in Madison have won James Beard Awards in past years. Tori Miller of Madison's L'Etoile won the Best Regional Chef Award in 2012, and Odessa Piper of L'Etoile won the same award in 2001. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Madison's 10th Alder District is on the southwest side of the city. 
and includes the Midvale Boulevard neighborhood. Earlier this week, we spoke with Diego Colorado and District Incumbent Jeanette Figueroa Cole about their campaigns for District 10 Alder. But this race will see another incumbent, Alder, running for this district, thanks to redistricting. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 10 on the southwest side of Madison, containing the area around the Beltline on Midvale and the Arbor Hills neighborhood. One of the three candidates in that primary race is Sherry Carter, current alder of District 14, but due to redistricting is now running in District 10. Alder Carter joins me now by phone. Uh, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thank you for having me. So just to begin, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Well, I am a native Madisonian. I've been working in the community for with community organizations, projects, etc. for over 20 years. And at one point, I decided to make the transition into being an elected official. And I've been representing District 14 since 2015. And outside of uh, sitting on the council, what do you do professionally? I'm an executive assistant for the Department of Health Services. Now, why are you running to stay on the council as a older person? I think that I can do the same integrity and commitment to District 10 that I've had for District 14, I want to, you know, bring those voices of the residents to the table and work with them, with the city and partners, uh, private partnerships in the area, just like I did for District 14. I believe that District 10, there's potential there for growth, economic development, and creating more spaces and places for the residents. And I think that is what motivated me, motivates me to run in District 10 today. And now you are in sort of an interesting position where you currently sit on the council with an incumbent older, but due to redistricting, mm -hmm. you are now running in District 10 here. Tell me a little bit about that feeling, about sitting on the council with the incumbent. Well, I think it is, it's an interesting feeling, I will say that. But, you know, I think that my experience and my transparency would benefit District 10. And now staying with you for just a little while longer, uh, Alder Carter, what do you do in your spare time? Oh, that's another good question, Nate. <laughs> I would say in my spare time, I enjoy nature. I enjoy movies and, and music, concerts. I think that, I think you do have to have a, a downtime from the business of being an elected official. Now let's turn our eyes over to the city now. What are the most pressing issues facing Madison that, if given more time on the council, you would want to address? Well, there's several things that I want to address in, in, in the next two years. I, I really want to make sure that we continue our, our progress with affordable housing, but I also want to look into growing businesses, especially small businesses. I want to, in addition to that, I want to make sure that we have a pathway from homelessness to housing. I think those are the main issues that needs to be addressed and, and including transportation because I think that the way our society is going, public transportation has always been important, but I think the way society is going right now is that there's more demand for more efficient transportation. I want to dive into a couple specific issues, and you mentioned public transportation, so let's start there. Now, bus rapid transit is set to take into effect pretty soon here. How do you feel about that? Well, first, let me just say public transportation needs to be improved. We all know that. I think the, the redesign and the BRT is designed very well for the east and west. 
I think that we need to take some time to really reevaluate the North and South. And now another issue that you brought up there was housing. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see to bring more affordable housing here to Madison? Well, I would like to see a couple things. I want to increase home ownership. I think that's very important. I think affordable housing needs to be in every area of the city, but it also needs to be on a transportation route, or I should say access to a transportation route. I think that we are looking at affordable housing in a different way. I think that affordable housing is intergenerational. I think affordable housing is good for, for example, seniors, uh, retirees, along with families and recent grads. So I think that we have to really look at affordable housing in a holistic way and not a narrow focus. But I also want to look at housing first. I don't think we should turn away from housing first. Housing first is an essential way to go from homelessness to housing. And now the final issue that I want to sort of take an eye at here is more sort of dealt with on the county level, but certainly has a pretty big implications on the city of Madison itself. And that is the F-35 fighter jets, which are set to be coming to Madison later this spring. How, how do you feel about the F-35 jets? Well, I think that we have done, as a council, we have done as almost as all we could do to bring this to the forefront of not only the attention of Madison as a whole, but also the attention of the federal government. But I think that we have to continue voicing our opinion on that and being cohesive in our message. What are a few issues facing your specific district, District 10 here? What have you heard from potential constituents? Well, I think what I've heard is that access to healthy food options, uh, safety, public safety, walkable employment. So uh, some of the same things that are in District 10, are in the rest of the city. I think that when you're closer to the epicenter of the city, it's a little bit different than when you are on uh, further out. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm really good at. And one of the things that I would like to bring to them is more what they need and want and deserve. Now, Alder Carter, you've sat on the council for a little while, so you sort of know that issues sometimes get complicated at the city council. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see some policy happen, and you have other constituents who want to see the opposite happen. How, how would you handle that sort of situation? Yeah, this is a good question because I think you have to balance what your district wants, what's good for the whole city, and you have to be transparent with both. And what I usually do is I have several meetings on that topic. Let's say it's a policy issue. I have several meetings on that and really try to show both sides and how it affects not only the whole city, but what it, how it affects those constituents in that district. It's a balancing act, and in the end, you're trying to do the best. There might be a compromise there that would work for everybody, but you have to be transparent. Now, wrapping up here, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? I hate to tell you this, Nate, but I want to go back to a question that you asked. Sitting on a council with an incumbent is a very interesting situation, as although you've seen how that person has conducted themselves over the last two years, I have to look at my experience and what I can do for District 10 and my commitment not only to the residents of that district, but my commitment to the city. And I think that will show District 10 my true self and my true words. 
I've been talking with Sherry Carter, current older for District 14 and due to redistricting, now a candidate in the primary election for the District 10 Alder seat. Uh, that primary election takes place on February 21st with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Alder Carter, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Nate, and thank you for the invite. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on Out of the Box, host D Star sits down with Ed Wall, the former secretary of the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. He shares details about his tell-all book, Unethical, a recollection of his time working for former Governor Scott Walker. Let's listen to their full interview. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with Ed Wall. How are you, D? So for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a director at the United Way of the 211 system. Uh, prior to that, I had a long career in government. I was uh, started in law enforcement as a police officer in the city of Meriden, Connecticut, where I'm from, and then became a state trooper in New Hampshire. I was there for 10 years. My wife's from Wisconsin, so we moved to Wisconsin in 1999. I joined the Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation. Went through the ranks there to special agent in charge. I was then asked by Governor Doyle to head state emergency management. I became the administrator in emergency management, and then eventually went back to the Division of Criminal Investigation as the administrator heading the agency. I was there until Governor Walker asked me to become secretary of the Department of Corrections. I was there for three and a half years. That was a mixed bag of results uh, with a, a lot of uh, painful memories, but good memories also. And then I retired from state government and went on to be CEO and president of Netshield Corporation, New Hampshire, where I was asked to come in and run that company that was in trouble and get it positioned for an acquisition, which I did. Came back to Wisconsin. My wife and kids stayed here. I was flying back and forth on weekends. Then took over as the director of the housing authority in DeForest, then was asked to join United Way. First things first, you released a book. I did. It is very compelling. Mm -hmm. You are sort of a truth teller. I am. Just reading just like the first couple of chapters, I'm actually really hooked on this book. <laughs> so the book is titled Unethical. It is. Tell us a little bit about the book. The book for me was cathartic. Um, it was a chance to tell the story of what really happened during my uh, time at the Department of Corrections. The issues that arose with the juvenile correction system, uh, the fact that the governor and the attorney general, uh, A, had information about it before I even became secretary, and then once the allegations started coming out about the youth who were being abused, their position was to sweep it under the rug and make it disappear as opposed to trying to address the problem. Um, ultimately, it led to, I resigned to go back to uh, the Department of Justice uh, and uh, the Attorney General there, who was trying to put his friend into my my position that was protected by state law, um, ended up terminating me. So I was fired and then went through a series of appeals, which I lost based on a technicality. Uh, and I, but I was able to retire, so they didn't they I didn't lose my retirement. So I finally decided. I'd had enough with politics and government, and I retired. That's one of the quotes that I actually have written down here that really struck me. Do more than you're asked, better than the others, and faster than expected. Let's just dive right into it. Go for it. Governor Walker signs Act 10. Yes. I was heading the Division of Criminal Investigation at the time. All hell breaks loose at the Capitol. It did, and I was angry uh, because my agents were excluded the rights that were given to the state troopers and all. And I, I went right across the street to the governor's chief of staff, uh, went in and told them that, you know, this is not good. You're dividing law enforcement. You're creating this problem that doesn't need to be made. But Walker, anybody who knew him, shouldn't have been surprised by it back when he was the county executive in Milwaukee. He was constantly banging heads with the teachers' unions. So for him to take the action that he did through Act 10 didn't surprise me, but I didn't think he would go after all unions in the state, which was really, that was biting off an awful, an awful lot. So 
also, ironically, the guys that he tried to divide and conquer were the same people charged with his protection. Exactly. And including my uh, my SWAT team. So my uh, my tactical team was actually the ones who were assigned to do close protection for him. So here he had in the governor's office my entire SWAT team unit protecting him after he had just told them that they lost all their rights to bargaining and advocating for themselves through their union. So it was an uncomfortable position. Take us to the mind state of that. For me, you know, I was in a I was in a difficult position. So I work for the attorney general who's an elected official, but I'm supposed to be neutral and detached, and that's the whole intention of the Division of Criminal Investigation. You're neutral and detached from everything that goes on around you. There should be no political influence on what we do and how we do our job. The reality is there's always political influence, no matter, you know, if, if you're going to work in law enforcement, I don't care if it's in a small town or a big city or state government, the, you're always working for a politician because that's who ultimately will end up running, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a city manager, whatever. So the politics of it was difficult uh, when the when the protest started, we were uh, we were brought in, as, and I headed the the state law enforcement response to it. And my staff, all of my agents, were uh, aside from the guys who were in their SWAT team uniforms for doing the protection of the governor. The rest were put undercover out into the crowds, not to try and arrest anybody, but just to kind of monitor the tempo, make sure that nothing was going wrong. And it was. It was a very well-behaved group. We didn't really, we didn't have the problems that people thought about. Yes, there were death threats on the governor. You're always going to get those, but they were trying to be anonymous or through email, et cetera. We had an entire staff that was tracking those down and going and addressing them with the people who made them. Some were arrested, um, but it was at the Capitol itself. It was relatively calm. There were a few times that were that put us on edge. I remember my office was in the, in the Department of Justice building looking out at the Capitol. And I recall looking across the street as a uh, U-Haul truck pulled up through the crowd and right up to the front steps of the Capitol on the Martin Luther King Drive side. From my experience, and you know, I ran the, the Homeland Security side of the house for Department of Justice. I ran emergency management. And I looked at that and thought, what's in that truck? Because here we had a building that looked like the U.S. Capitol with tens of thousands of people protesting in the street and what would be a better display for a terrorist group than to detonate a large bomb there and use that for their purposes. So that that was a tense moment. We ended up finding the truck driver. We had all of our people in the crowd looking for him and it was they were delivering sound equipment for the people who were going to be speaking to the protesters. So it didn't end up being anything, but those are the kinds of things in your mindset as you look around you worry about who and what is a target, and you want to protect the protesters, you want to protect the Capitol, you want to protect the legislators. That was our job in law enforcement. Some of it got out of hand. You know, we had people breaking windows, and they took over the Capitol and occupied the Capitol. I understood the, you know, the angst by the department administration. Absolutely, you were directed effective. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they were nervous that the building was going to be damaged and all, and I was back and forth appearing before judges as, they, as uh, the state was making arguments for closing the Capitol down and getting everyone out. But in reality, there was some damage. The bathrooms were overflowed and things like that, but it, it was nothing particularly major. So you actually ended up working for Scott Walker. I did. <laughs> After that, right? <laughs> yeah, re- reluctantly. Actually, when he first came in, I was asked if what I thought about the Department of Corrections. That was Out of the Box with an interview with former... Wisconsin Department of Corrections Secretary, Ed Wall. And tonight we are excited to debut a new feature. We're calling The House Always Wins. Carpentry educators and home improvement dilettantes, John and Allie, explain what's causing frost on your windows on cold winter days and how a humble bath fan can help lower the humidity in your home, freshen your indoor air, and prevent those frosty windows. I call it housework, cause it's light work. What you, what you done here? I'ma throw shapes, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you'll learn cool stuff about your house. Uh, I suppose we should start, Allie, with who we are and why the listeners should actually listen to us, yeah? Yep. My card, as it were. Well... 
between us, we have, oh, I don't know, over 50 years of experience in working on houses or something like that. But uh, once you're over 30, who's counting anymore anyway, right? It's like birthdays? Something like that. Mm. Uh, And the fact is that as long as we've been building, remodeling, inspecting, teaching about, and just generally admiring homes, people have been asking us questions about homes. Sure enough. uh, Once people find out that you have experience in building and remodeling, the questions just start rolling in. I've got this thing about my house. My water softener makes this funny wubba 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 noise. I tell you, we're always popular at parties, eh? That is true. Now, we've been answering those questions one at a time. And so in the interest of efficiency, we're here ready to answer your home building, home remodeling, and carpentry questions. So if you have a question about your house or about carpentry, send us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm. Ready to get to work? You bet. Let's do it. So recently we had a bit of a cold snap back in December. Oh, yeah. It was brief. I think it was 10 minutes, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. And um, a friend of mine, she was house-sitting for for someone, and and she said, oh, my God, I'm in this house, and there's there's ice on the windows. Mm. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Ice on the door. Mm, Mm. Not great. And she said, the light fixtures have ice on them. In fact, they're dripping on me at night. Wow, light fixtures. Dang, I, I guess that gives you a whole new uh, meaning to the term chandelier, right? Well, if that's true, and hey, that that's fun, uh, dripping ice chandeliers, but uh, we've both seen our share of serious ice buildup in folks' houses over the years. Um, in some cases, it's almost enough to chip off the ice and make an old-fashioned, eh? That's right. Uh, okay, maybe not. But uh, that said, what's really going on is there's two different things here. Um, there's indoor humidity issues and air leakage and or lack of insulation. Right. And I want to make sure we tackle both of those things. But mm-hmm. for right now, let's just look at that indoor humidity situation. So what we mean here with indoor humidity is, is that there's water vapor in the air. And where's that water vapor coming from? Well... You know, in the winter, sometimes it seems like it's really dry in your house. Mm. Am I right? Right. You get itchy. Yeah. But the fact is, your house is all sealed up. You got your windows closed. You keep the door closed. And you're you're in there. Your family's in there living, showering, bathing, cooking, the dogs panting in the corner. All of those things are putting a little water vapor in the air every time you every time those things are happening. And that's what is creating this indoor humidity. Um, and unless you can get some fresh air in that house, get that stale air out, that humid air out, and mm-hmm. get some fresh air in, you're going to be continuing to build up that humidity. And that's what's, what's condensing on all those surfaces in that, in that friend's house. Right. Well, you know, ways to deal with that. There's a couple different ways, but one of them is that thing that most everybody already knows about, turns on and doesn't actually know what it does. That would be the bathroom fan. Uh, bathroom fan is definitely one way to get rid of that excess moisture. That's a, a source one right there, right? That's the shower, the hot, steamy shower that the teenagers always take. It lasts for half an hour and uses up all your hot water. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about bath fans. Uh, so a bath fan, frankly, is just always a good idea, in my opinion. Um, and a lot of people have them, and that's fantastic. Here's the, here's the rub. Mm. Bath fans need to actually ventilate out to the exterior. Oh, my God, that's crazy talk. No, I'm telling you what, I've inspected a ton of houses. I go up in the attic, and the bath fan, it just dumps all that shower, that moist shower air right into the attic. Almost worse than probably not having that bath fan in a lot of cases. If you have a bath fan uh, and it is actually exhausted to the outside, then then the the only step left is to actually use the thing. But... What are we going to do for people who don't have a bath fan? What's, what does it look like to, to pick out a bath fan and then get one installed? Well, you're going to have to buy one. So you'll go to the big box store or to your local hardware store and you'll find all these bath fans sitting on a shelf. Cool. What are the things you look at? They're going to have three or four different things on there. The most important ones are the CFMs. And the noise. And noise is zones, and the lower the number is better, right? The lower zones. Right. And then CFMs, 
uh, refers to cubic feet per minute and mm. kind of talks about how much air that fan is, is sucking out of the room uh, in one minute, how many cubic feet. Uh, that number, generally, larger is better. You're going to be moving more air. Mm. Right. Can't go wrong by getting more ventilation, that's for sure. Um, well, then, who would install a bath fan? What does that look like, Ellie? Well, I'll tell you what, I have installed a few bath fans, mm. and it is, it is not my favorite Oh, uh, no, no, project. not fun. So here's the thing about installing a bath fan. It's a, multiple trades are involved a little bit. Mm. Uh, so the first thing is you need an electrical connection. Now, if you already had a bath fan there, that might be good. You, have, you might already be taken care of in that, in that respect. Yay. If, if there was no bath fan, you're going to need a new circuit. Mm. And uh, that you should, have a, you should have a licensed electrician uh, put in an electrical circuit in your home. Then there's a little bit of carpentry. You, there's going to be a hole in the ceiling. Mm. Um, the fan has to be attached to the framing. That's crazy talk. Right. And if you don't know what I mean by the framing, then this is probably not a project you should take on. That would be a red flag right there. That'd be a red flag, right? Uh, then you need to attach a duct to the fan and get that duct all the way to the outside of your house. You might be popping that duct out the roof. You might pop it out the side of the house. Hmm. Sounds complicated. Okay, so now we put a hole in the house, either oh in God. the roof or in the side of the house. Uh, so you're probably also going to want to get either a roofer or a carpenter or handy person uh, to make sure that that hole you've just put in your house doesn't leak water uh, or cause cause other problems, uh, any other failure. So, like I say, a lot of different types of work are involved a little bit. No doubt. And if there were any of these that really you wanted to get someone in, the, uh, a licensed electrician would be the one because that is an area where it can get pretty dangerous and just not the best thing to be playing around with that on your own unless you absolutely know what you're doing. The last aspect of this is it only works if you use it, right? Oh, God, yeah. We both had teenagers in our homes, and I remember well uh, the teenager that took me, I don't know, a year to get him. Uh, entire teenage years? In, in teenage years, yes. It took an entire teenage year for them to understand that they needed to turn on the fan switch when they went into the shower. Yay, success. And then uh, spent another year explaining to them how they had to turn it off because it had been running for three hours. Right. Well, and, uh, you know, circling back. It's it. Some people just don't like using it because it's so loud. And and so what's a workaround for that problem? Well, I tell you what I installed in my house. It was a motion sensor switch. That's brilliant. A motion sensor switch or a timer switch. They both work great. By God, I put that in and it turned on when he walked in automatically. And when he walked out, it turned off. Crisis averted, and that was no longer an area of strife between me and my teenager. There were plenty of others, but at least that one was resolved. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. And I just have, uh, in my home, I have a timer switch on there, so you can choose whether it's on for five minutes, 15 minutes, an hour. And because a bath fan is a pretty cheap way to ventilate your home, sometimes I just turn it on and just get a little fresh air going. For fun? My, just Well, just for fun, exactly. In the winter when my house is closed up, just freshens things up a little bit. Uh, I like things being a little fresh from time to time. It's, exactly. it's a beautiful thing. And I don't have to be in the bathroom when it's running. It could just be running. Exactly. Well, that's it for this time. Uh, next thing, time, we'll dig into uh, range hoods and other ventilation issues that are important for you and your home's health. And maybe even talk a bit about air leakage. If you have home building, home remodeling, or carpentry questions, please email us at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. We can't promise we're going to answer every question, but we'll give you at least two opinions for every question we do answer. It's true. We have opinions. Thanks, and talk to you next time. Every other Thursday, we offer you up-to-date fishing report, Fishy Business. This week, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg break down what fish are biting underneath the ice and review the newest fish consumption advisory just issued last week for the Ahara chain of lakes.
All righty, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, just to sort of start things off here, let's uh, look at ice conditions. It's been nice and chilly. How's the ice looking? Ice is looking great around town. They've got solid coverage across all the lakes in town, and a lot of guys are out uh, running around on ATVs all across uh, Lake Mendota and outside of uh, one small spot over near Monona, all over Lake Monona, too. Now, Pat, we talk a lot about fishing in the sort of Dane County area here, and something that we really haven't touched on too much before is is the PFAS in some of the fish here. Specifically, the DNR last week put out a new fish consumption advisory for parts of the Yahara chain here in Dane County, I believe Lake Monona, Mud Lake. Kaganza, Wabisa. They specifically, they've added a new fish to that list. That's white bass. Uh, they are now advising that you eat just one meal a month out of white bass. I just sort of want to, well, you know, what is sort of your your take on on the PFAS here in Madison? I know personally, I don't really eat too many fish out of like Monona or uh, Wabisa or a place like that. But what are what are sort of your thoughts there? Well, you're not alone. I'm uh, right there with you. I also have stopped eating fish out of any, anywhere downstream of Lake Monona. And, you know, it's really an unfortunate situation because there's a lot of fish out there and a lot of people in the Madison area rely on the fish out of the Madison lakes for, you know, sustenance. But so, you know, the, these advisories and this information, you know, keeps um, developing, you know, because we, we, as I understand it, at least we don't know a ton about the effects of the PFAS, but, you know, it's definitely something to be concerned about. And I know I would say, at least half the anglers that come through the shop are, you know, on the same page as you and I, where they, they've just stopped eating fish out of those lakes and, you know, focus on if they're keeping fish, you know, they're, they're looking more on Lake Mendota or traveling outside of Madison uh, to get fish to eat. Like you said, Lake Mendota, and they haven't said anything about that, so I'll still keep some fish out of there. And speaking of Lake Mendota, let's get into uh, the fishing report here and start off with Mendota. What's happening there? Well, like I mentioned, the uh, ice is, we've got full coverage across the whole lake up, up here, and folks are running ATVs all over the lake. Uh, there's a good perch bite out there right now. A lot of the action I hear about is in kind of the west basin, so think, you know, over on the Middleton shoreline and, and out from there. But uh, folks are also running out to the deep water off Governor's Island and off Picnic Point and that, and, and they're finding schools of perch out there and, and doing pretty well. Well, then let's move over to uh, Monona there. What's happening on Monona? Uh, kind of the same thing on Monona. They, you know, uh, all around the lake, uh, folks are running ATVs all over, chasing schools of perch around, and they're finding schools of perch. I don't know if the bite is as hot over there, or maybe I'm just not hearing about it at the shop here, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, there, there's a lot of perch in that system too, and um, it, there's also a good walleye bite still going on. I know we've talked about that a few times on the other reports, and, you know, the walleyes are up shallow, uh, 15 feet or less, basically everywhere around the lake. Uh, that bite tends to be mostly 3 in the afternoon till 7, and then uh, the pike bite is, is great on across the whole chain. There, there's just a lot of pike out there right now, so a lot of, a lot of folks are doing well on tip-ups around the chain. Like you said, the walleye bite has been doing pretty good, especially on, uh, you know, a Monona area for a, a while now since we've been doing this. Uh, when when does that bite usually start to slow down? Well, I mean, I guess your guess is as good as mine because as far as I know, this is kind of uncharted territory. It's, it's, uh, it, it really isn't something that I'm used to hearing much about. I know the on, on Mendota, the walleye bite has is, is classically been um, something that starts off kind of early in, in when, when I say early, I mean early ice, uh, and then just sort of tapers off as the winter kind of wears on. But, um, and you know, that could be the case on Monona, but, uh, the, the walleye bite that I've, uh, been hearing about on Monona is really unprecedented as far as, um, at least what I know about uh, the history of the Madison chain. Well, I think we got t- enough time for about one more lake here and let's go with Wabisa. What's happening on Lake Wabisa? Well, they're also doing well down there, cruising around on ATVs all around the lake. Uh, the bite down there seems to be a little tougher. They're, they've been out looking for perch for a few weeks now already, but um, that bite has been a little slow. They're finding perch, but uh, getting them to bite is, is another, another issue. So um, the, the theory that I've heard from a lot of folks is that they're gorging themselves on bloodworms, and so they're just not uh, interested in uh, the lures that uh, anglers are putting down there. But I, I, I have heard 
of some decent walleye action down there. And also the pike bite, like I said, all over the chain is great in shallow water. So a lot of pike coming out of that area. Well, let's wrap things up for today here, Pat. Any final advice that you want to give all the people out there? Well, you know, it's like I said, the the ice is generally safe all across the chain. So I'd encourage folks to get out and experience ice fishing. It's a wonderful Wisconsin tradition and, and just a great time. It's a great excuse to get outside. Well, thank you so much for talking with me again this week, Pat. Remember that you can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. You take care. It was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporters tonight were Aaron Ashley and Faye Parks. Welcome to, to the team, Faye. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie, and Ali Barini, and Pat Hansberg. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast, and Ms. Shali Pippen is the news director here at WORT. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. For Stacey Harbaugh, I'm Marcus Slayton. Thank you guys for listening, and have a good night. W-O-R-T, Madison. Building apartments so near us will certainly kick up some dirt. And after that's gone, our woes will go on because traffic and noise will still hurt. There's a lot of new housing around us. But none that so troubles our heart. This complex is close enough to us. Our new neighbors will hear when we fart. And we hope they're upwind. I will be leaving this call now. My spirits will very soon spiral. But perhaps I'll, fu- I'll upload this on TikTok. You'll likely learn if it goes viral.